Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. If you're just joining us this week, uh, welcome. We're glad to see you. Uh, We are in a teaching series where we're just kind of unpacking the conversations surrounding families and the family that dynamics that we have in all of the variety of ways we're looking at what the Bible has to say about family and trying to align our lives with that. And the first week we looked at just God's design and his purpose for families, not just for the internal mechanisms of the family, which we're going to talk about a little bit today, but that the purpose of the family is unto the flourishing of the whole world. It's a big deal. And then last week we looked at kind of the family in its most isolated form in the individual. And we talked about how God redeems us and calls us into a whole new identity. And today we're going to flesh that out a little bit more. And we're going to look at God's instructions with Paul in Colossians, the instructions he gives for Christian households. And we're going to start to paint a picture of what God had in mind for maybe the stereotypical Christian family. Now, when you think the word family, you think a picture of a family. Uh, I don't know about you, but all of a sudden, the, the days that we live in, that's maybe a little more complicated to define than it used to be. In fact, I had a kind of a stunning moment. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was on vacation with my family. We took a few weeks, uh, a couple of days on a vacation together. And I found myself in the rare situation where I was channel surfing and just looking through what was on TV. Does anybody even do that anymore? Is that, is that a thing that we do? I had my kid get up and turn the dial while I said, okay, stop it there. I was just joking. Anybody remember those days? Okay, kids, stand there with the, the rabbit ears and get this. Anyway, y'all didn't even know about that, kids. But... I was channel surfing, and I noticed that TV itself has changed dramatically. When I was a kid, most shows, like the big popular shows in the mainstream, really centered around like the nuclear family. Does anybody else just have vivid memories of the Huxtables? Anybody? America's dad, until he wasn't. Um, But we also had like families like... Full House, and in that era, you had the Seavers. Remember the Seavers? Family Ties? You had, um, oh, I love the one. What was the one, uh, the kid that walked around in the 60s and he had a narrator in his life? Um, Fred Sa- Wonder Years, thank you. It was a good show. I kind of wanted that narrator in my life just walking around, and then Brent went to class. Um, but yeah, I love Full House. My kids have, si- have since gone through all the reruns. I think my son, low-key, wants to be a tanner, but that's, I won't take too much offense to that. But there was this era you could find on TV, these, these shows, the, the airwaves were dominated with kind of the nuclear family. One of my favorites in that time, like the early 90s, was, was the Winslows, right? Anybody remember the Winslows and Steve Urkel, the next door neighbor? I loved, I, I, would, I loved the Winslows. That was my favorite show. And really most of these shows centered around kind of the nuclear family, a mom, a dad, and kids with some different variations and iterations. And then I got thinking about it as I was looking on TV on vacation and realizing, you know what, there's not that many shows being produced today like that. And I got thinking back on the evolution of how mainstream culture portrayed the family unit. And really around the time of Family Matters, that's when you started to see the emergence of more gritty shows like The Simpsons that was still based on a family family dynamic, but it was a lot more honest with the realities and complexities of family, correct? Like one of the problems I think we have with Family Matters and uh, the Winslows
close is that a lot of the problems we face in life are way too complicated to, to tie up in a neat bow in 22 minutes, right? And they resolved every issue, and that's just not real life. And so you started to see the emergence of more raw, real, gritty, and maybe humorous shows like The Simpsons, where you saw families like Roseanne's family, remember them? What was their, what was their name? The, not Barr, that's her name. What was her, I, forget, I forget what their families, they're, they're called the Roseannes? The Connors, thank you. Yes, the Connors. Or you had, uh, you had the Bundys. Remember the Bundys, married with children, right? You started to see the emergence of a more raw, maybe even slightly dysfunctional family on the TV screen. My favorite in that era was definitely, definitely the Fresh Prince. I don't need any of you rapping the whole, the whole intro right now. Save it for later. I'm sure you know all the words, but I loved, I loved that era. But you started to see, again, I got thinking about like through the early 90s, you saw a little more raw and honest portrayal. And then when you get kind of to the turn of the millennium, if you think back on the shows that were coming out, you started to see a lot more different variations of the way that they were framing the nuclear family. You started to see shows like Will and Grace. You started to see shows like Two and a Half Men. You remember that show? Like where it wasn't really fitting the, the traditional Western Judeo-Christian mold of a man, a wife, and their kids. It started to get a little more, a little more varieties, like shows like Arrested Development, which was quite funny, by the way. But anyway, I'm not, this is not a pastoral recommendation, so don't... <laughs> But you, again, you saw a little more complex, a little more variation to where I was thinking this is probably the last like mainstream, you know, family sitcom that was mass produced. And I'm sure there's some, some exceptions to the rules. Maybe, you, you know, a show that's on Disney streaming or whatever. But by and large, you really, if you go back 30 years and you play out the way that mainstream culture presented the family, it got less and less easy to define what a family is. Can you kind of play back that in your mind? Which leads us here to the question today, you know, what is a family and how are we supposed to define it? And how does God define family according to his word? That's what we're looking at in this series. And we have been taking these weeks to get clarity on our vision for what it means to be a Christian and particularly a Christian family. And today I want to just ask a simple question. Again, it's a teaching, it's a teaching sermon, so sit back, take notes. But here's what I want to cover really quickly today. I want to paint a picture of what is a Christian household and what is a Christian family designed and meant to look like. And we're going to just sort of form that together with the scripture. And then at the end, please stay tuned, because at the end we're going to talk about a path forward. I'll spoil it a little bit and, and say this, that already some of you are realizing that, you know, if we're going to go back and talk about the Tanners, my family is a little more Bundy than it is Tanner. And I have good news. The invitation of Jesus is good news for all people. We've been saying that the whole way along. Amen? So regardless of the complexity and composition of your family, it's good news. But that does not change what God's intent was. So we want to hold that out together today. So a picture of the family. To do that, I told you to turn to Colossians. We're going to read Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossus. And this was a Greco-Roman society, and it had all the same current issues and dysfunctions and stuff that we're wrestling with as we do today. Similar, very similar cultures to what we're living in. Now, some of you are saying, well, how is it similar? And electricity, all the things that the, the, the 
Christian church was dealing with in those days are very similar to what we're dealing with today. And that is, you know, finding the division between what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to just be part of the society and how that fleshes itself out in life. Now, in the letters of Paul, here's a pro tip. Anytime you're reading one of the letters, you can, you can know this. He usually spends the first half of it correcting our thinking. Correcting theology. It's usually talking about the gospel, talking about what it means. And then you can almost on a dime see when he turns a corner and he starts to apply the gospel to real life. And that's where we get here in Colossians 3. He sets up the whole first couple chapters talking about the supremacy of Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross. One of my favorite books in the whole Bible, you know, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them on the cross. And then he gets to chapter 3 and it says, since you you have been raised to life with Christ, and then he gets to the therefore. Now let's read it, and let's start piecing together a framework for the family, because he ends off with instructions to the family, and it's connected to this stuff. Are you with me? You awake? All right, it's really hot in here, which is very opposite of the first service. I got to tell you, we were having trouble with the heater, so it's, uh, anyway. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Now, if you're a note taker, you're an underliner, and I, I do recommend you doing that, I just want you to focus in on taking off your old self with its practices. Paul is speaking of an entirely new identity, which we talked about last week, but I want to tie this in to your vision of the family. If we're asking the question, you know, what does the Bible say is the picture of a Christian family? Well, it begins not in, an, in a marriage, but it actually begins in a divorce. Now, what are you talking about, Pastor Brent? The Bible says God hates divorce. He does. He hates divorce of marriage, but, he, but here's, the, here's what this is calling us to. It's a divorce from the ways of this world. That you and I, as we start to form our identity in Christ and our families in Christ, it begins with a divorce from the world. I say it like this, that we have become estranged from the world. Now, some of you are thinking that's pretty strong language. Yes, it is. And this is the language that Paul was getting at in his letter. He was saying to be united in Christ and to live the new life in Christ and to be a Christian family, it begins with a decision that we are no longer uh, aligning with and keeping our allegiance to the world and its ways. It's a decision of separation. Very important that we start to capture that. And really, this is kind of the heart behind some of this series and this season that we're in is, I believe God is moving our church and waking us up into the moment where we now realize to be Christian does indeed take a decision of my mind, my will, and my lifestyle to put off the old self and put on a new self. And there actually is meant to be distinction between my old self and my new self, and distinction between the ways of this world and the ways of the kingdom. It's really important that we understand this. Let me say it like this, and this might help wake some of you up. 
we as Christians in this country are a religious minority. And it is time that we start seeing ourselves that way. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You know how, like, you maybe have some Muslim neighbors or some Hindu neighbors that you live near. Do you notice how they don't let the fact that they live in Canada or on your street overly affect their lifestyle? Why? Because they're Muslims. Christians in the West have had the luxury, but have, because of that, fallen asleep to some things. But we have, for the last century, lived in a country that largely adopted Judeo-Christian values. And if you lived your life according to, you know, following Jesus in a basic way, it largely lined up with the flow of culture, correct? But now we live in a time where that has shifted, and all of a sudden, there's a lot of us waking up to the fact that, oh, I think it cost me something to follow Jesus. And I think I actually, quite similarly to other religions, have to make a decision that I am going to walk in this lifestyle regardless of what it costs me and regardless of how it looks. You know, I, I, grew up, I grew up in the evangelical church. I know all of us didn't hear part of King's Church. We've got a wide variety of upbringings that I'm really grateful for. Some of you grew up, you know, in agnostic, atheistic backgrounds, and you're a believer now. Some of you grew up in Catholic or mainline, you know, high church expressions. And so you don't know anything about what I'm going to talk about next. But I grew up evangelical, which means I was forced to listen to DC talk. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. Now, they're not bad, but... They had a song back when I was a teenager called Jesus Freak. Does anybody remember that song? What would people think if they hear that I'm a Jesus freak? Know that one? What would people do if they find out it's... Anyway, sorry. Uh, I promise I won't rap the whole rap part. That would be cringe level 1,000, right? Kids, you don't want to see your dad rapping on stage. Anyway. That was a huge hit, and for me as, a, as like a Christian teenager, it did. It called me to like really own my faith, and it's okay if people know that I'm a Christian. But that was written in a time where if you were a Christian kid in the West, it was highly possible, quite easy, and even probable that your life was largely indistinguishable from the next kid who wasn't a Christian. And it wasn't out of any kind of decision to be bad or good. It was just the way that culture worked. But now we live in a time like my kids, that isn't quite the same rally cry for them as it was for me. My kids have to make a choice even before they go to school that, hey, they all know I'm a Christian kid. I can't hide it. And I want to just suggest to you today that that's how God intended it to be anyway. That maybe this is a painful gift to the church for us to rediscover our identity as a religious minority, as a people separate from the world and called to God, that we no longer have this sort of dual or unclarified allegiance. You know, right now, the, there's a lot of like church experts, ecclesiologists that are, are talking about what's happening in the church in the West. And you might read some articles, maybe Time Magazine. I've seen different news sources post stuff like the church in America and the church in North America is in steep decline. And on the one hand, you could make a case for that, that the amount of people that attend church on a Sunday today is dramatically less than it was even 20, 30 years ago. However, what a lot of ecclesiologists are saying and what a lot of pastors would even concur, I would myself, is not that the church is dying. It's that the real church is just being seen for the first time in a while. 
They're calling it the, the ecclesiologists, these are people who, who study the church, are calling it the rise of the nuns. Not nuns, like <laughs> nuns. I mean, I mean nuns. I mean nuns who, when they took the, the, the census, when you received the census from the federal government and said, which religion are you from? 20 or 30 years ago, most people in Canada just would have said, I inherited Christianity. But now we live in a time where those people are saying, well, I don't actually want to be Christian. That doesn't work with the way my life is going. And so they check off none instead of Christian. And so you see this rise of the nuns. But I believe this is a real gift in this moment that we're in where God is causing Christians, the real church, to stand up and just say, yeah, we are followers of Jesus. Yeah, we have set ourselves apart from this world. There are things we are actively trying to reject in our endeavor to actively try to accept Christ and all that that means. And that's the moment that we're in. Paul, Paul is saying, look, you have got to actually estrange yourself from the ways of the world. Like he said in Romans 12, he said, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change how you think about everything. And that's what he's getting at. We can no longer, you know, straddle the line because it's gotten too difficult. You've got to make your choice. And this is what Jesus was getting at when he said, no one can serve two masters. You'll either live to serve and love God or you'll live to serve and love the world or mammon or it's translated money there. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, said it like this. He, did, he was not one to, uh, like, you want to you find a, a book in the Bible that says, like, tell me what you really mean. James is like full send. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The Christian family begins with a decision to be a Christian family. Amen? And that, that is your decision. God has no grandkids. Nobody inherits this faith. Now, we do pray prayers and sing songs about your children and their children and their children. Amen. But my prayer is that my kids, which I believe they have and will continue to do, are choosing for themselves to follow Jesus, not just because mom and dad do. And that is the moment that we're in. Our Christian families begin with a decision, built on a decision. We are, and I hope, I hope this sticks with you. I felt really very much to say this. It's important that you start seeing yourself as a religious minority in this country. And that your identity as a family, as an individual, is defined by your Christianity. You, you don't see a Muslim dentist who says, I'm a dentist and also a Muslim. Do you? They're a Muslim who happens to be a dentist. Christians, we've diluted that a little bit, haven't we? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a Leafs fan, and I'm a Christian as well. That's not how it works. I am a Christian and all of my identity flows from and through that. Amen? Second, let's keep going. So Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your old life. Verse 9, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Now let's, let's, let's read on. He says, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator, and now, look where he expresses the new self. Watch this. He says, there is here in this new self, in this new world, in the new life that Jesus gives us, he gets speaking about our group identity. Look, he says, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Therefore, as God's, say it with me, chosen people, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell in you, dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the what? The Father through him. So Paul is not just speaking of a new individualistic identity, but he actually begins with the implications of you following Jesus has to do with the, the, the macro family that you are now a part of. So when we get talking about who are you know, the, the Christian household, who is the picture of a Christian family? Well, they have been separate from the world. They've adopted a new lifestyle. And then they see themselves as a part of the larger family of faith. The larger family of faith. They're adopted. You're married into. You're the bride of Christ married into the church. That's where our identity gets formed. This is so important. It's critical that you hear this. There is no Christian household that does not first find its identity in the church. It is impossible to be a Christian household and not be grafted in or part of the, the larger family of God. Let me say it a different way. If you take the scripture seriously, I know, believe me, I come, from, I come from like a double dose of good families, and I'm very blessed for that. My, my father's side and my mother's side, Christian heritage, we do family really well. I love my family. They're my favorite people to be with. I love all of like family gatherings. I look forward to it. I know that's not all of your, all of your experiences, but a lot of you have the same as me. I love my family, but if I take the Scripture seriously— the Bible puts the weight of authority and value on the family of God, you and me, as higher and greater than the biological nuclear family. Now, I know for some of you, because you come from really healthy, tight-knit families, and it's a blessing, and God made it to be a blessing. But do not confuse the fact that when God talks about family, the highest and best, he's establishing that under the reality of the church family, the macro family. We are not Christians among other things. We are, we are part of the family of God. That is our identity. The nuclear Christian family, let me say it like this. Um, your biological family, your, your, you and your wife and your kids, you are one cell in the body of Christ. Does that make a little more sense? You are one cell in the body of Christ, and the value is on the body. The power is in the body. The grace is in the body. And your ability to flourish as a Christian family is only in so much as you find yourself connected to the body. Very important that we recapture this, that Christ is all to us and is in all of us. What does that mean? 
it means that like Christ is everything to you. Amen? And Christ is everything to me. And he's, we have that in common. Uh, think about it this way. I, I remember one time I was in Haiti. And this just struck me so strong in that moment. I was in like the, the back hills of Haiti. We were in this small little, what you would call like a, a shed that you would put your tractor in if you had one. And we're in there, about a hundred of us, worshiping Jesus together. And when I came in, you know, there's all these Haitians. And I was just struck with how different my upbringing was from them, you know. Grew up in Fredericton, had a stable home. My parents, you know, I, we weren't rich, but we never wanted for anything. We even had a cottage. Like, I not only have one roof over my head, I had two. And then I'm sitting there looking at the life that these folks are living, many of whom didn't have, like, more than one change of clothes, like, just major poverty. And I'm sitting there thinking of all the things we don't have in common. And then the moment we start singing praises to Jesus... I no longer see our differences as that major in the light of he who which we have in common. And all of a sudden I'm singing, not with Haitians who live so far away from me, both sociologically and geographically. I'm singing with brothers and sisters who have the same Savior as me, who have the same Father as me, who have the same hope as me, who are celebrating the same wild grace and redemption as me. We have the same story. And this is, this is the, the great mystery of being part of the family of God. Let me say it like this. Every believer, regardless of background, interest, nationality, or pedigree, has he who is the all, he who is everything, in common. Does that make sense? I, I struggled wordsmithing this. I had a different sentence last night, and Anthony read it and said, that really doesn't make sense. So I tried again. And let me say it like this. Like, to have Jesus in common with someone is to have everything in common. You can't share more with someone else than Jesus as Lord. He is the singular. He is the all in all. He has brought us together. I know it's real easy to come into a context like this and see all kinds of people from every walk of life. But once you set Jesus at the center and say, he's my savior and he's your savior and he's good to you and he's good to me, we have so much. We have all, everything in common. We used to sing this song uh, back in the day at the church I grew up in. Now, we don't sing it anymore because it's in like three, four time. Uh, it's like a waltz. You can't, we don't do, anyway, music nerds, got it? Okay. But anybody, anybody grew up in church, any old saints, you know this song. We would, the, the pastor would get up. This gives some of you nightmares. You think we're touchy. Uh, he, he'd get up and he'd say, all right, everybody, we're gonna sing God's family and you're all gonna go around and sing to each other and shake hands while you do it. And we walk around, we sing, we're part of the family. It's been born, I can't even do three, four either. It's been born again, part of the family whose love knows no end for Jesus has saved us and made us. Oh, there's some old school people here that know it. We're part of the family that's on its way home. Now, some of you had that other one. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Anybody? All, all the new Christians are like, bro, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. The point is this. We used to rehearse and sing and celebrate the great value that is we are one big multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-socioeconomic, diverse 
family united in one singular person named Jesus. And that is the greatest bond in existence. Oh, Pastor Brent, you are, you are bringing the heat. I'm just collecting myself. No, it's so important. This is why for Paul, the family of God was so huge and so meaningful and substantive. It's not just like this nice consolation prize pat on the head for those of you who don't have kids of your own or you don't have a spouse of your own. For Paul, the family of Christ was everything. And that anybody who had like a nuclear family, anybody who was married and had kids, it was out of the overflow of the joy that we have in our union with Christ that that operates. This is why Paul said, full stop, read it. It's in the letter. He says, I wish that some of you would stay single like me and realize the joy that it is. He was a widower, they think. In any case, when he wrote those letters, he was single. And he said, I am completely fulfilled and satisfied in Christ, in the family of God. It's, it's massive. So when we get talking about the family of God, the call to all of us to be united in him, to singles, to widows, to widowers, to divorced, to macro or micro families, we're all found our identity in him, in his family. Number three, we are powered. So let's start zooming in now. We have the framework of the family. I'm almost done, John. Jumpins. Big sigh. Big sigh in the front row here. <sighs> this guy keeps me honest anyway. Yeah. You want to go home? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the family is powered by a marriage. We, uh, we're going to look at the text here. Paul said, verse 18, Wives, submit yourselves to, the hus to your husband as is fitting unto the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as you and do not be harsh with them. Now we looked in week one about God's original design for family, Genesis 1 and 2. We saw that God made the man and made a woman and said, Come together, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And this is God's design for family. And we believe, and we said it in week one, that God's design for the family is unto the flourishing of the whole world. So what is marriage? Well, marriage is a holy covenant between a man and a woman that's designed to last forever. A covenant is not a contract. A covenant is a, is a holy agreement before God. It's more complicated than signing a piece of paper or agreeing that we're going to live together. A covenant is holy. There's spiritual implications to that. And this is what God had in mind when he made man and woman. He brought them together as one flesh. Jesus was quoting this when he was teaching. He says, the two will become one. A man will leave his father and mother and will cleave, will come together with his wife and form one flesh. And the oneness is in every single way. It's, it's physiological, sexual, intellectual, it's uh, emotional, it's economic. In every way, there is this coming together of one flesh between a man and a woman. And what marriage is designed to do is not just make babies, although that's part of it. Procreation is part of it. God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. But it's also, as we are his image bearers, Marriage is designed to be the, 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 the spark that powers the engine that is the family unto the flourishing of the world. Some of you are like, wow, that's a lot of metaphor. No, the marriage is the, is the, the life, the spark that is supposed to, to energize the family. 
That's what the marriage is designed to do. And this is, this is how God designed kids to be raised. This is how God designed the world to flourish. It's with a, a covenant relationship of a man and a woman who learn how to relate to one another as an overflow of their expression and their worship and adoration of Jesus. Now, if you want more teaching on marriage, uh, I can't dive into that all the way. I know, I know all of you have marriage figured out anyway, so this is just review. It's just review. But uh, no, you can go on our website or you can go on our YouTube channel. We have a couple series in the last three or four years specifically diving, popping the hood and saying how we make these marriages work better. But in effect, and this is important, as we're kind of assembling the stereotypical, you know, Christian household. When Paul gives instruction to Christian household, he's doing it out of the flow of everything we just read. Correct? Like, he didn't just dump verse 18 in here and say, oh yeah, and husbands. This is actually out of the overflow of your life with Christ. And that is actually how God designed marriage to work. Now, there are, there are marriages who aren't believers and they're making it work. But I believe, according to the word of God, that God actually designed human beings to be union, to be brought together in marriage. And that marriage works because Jesus, the grace and love and peace of Jesus, is designed to flow into two individuals and to fulfill one another like in reciprocity. Does that make sense? Like we were designed to not be fulfilled by each other. We were designed to be fulfilled by Jesus and to serve and complement one another as we live our lives together. This is why we run into problems. Actually, Paul was kind of giving us some clues here as to where we run into problems. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. This is actually going right against the grain of where your shadow side wives will often go. Now, I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but the reality is, you know, we do believe that men and women are quite different. And a lot of the time, not in my experience, but in yours, uh, wives, when they aren't operating out of the overflow of the grace and peace of Jesus, are trying to satisfy their deep longing for security, for peace, for things to be right in the world, for justice. They are trying to exercise that in controlling their husband. It's funny, but it's true. No, it actually is the shadow, the shadow side. It's what happens when a married couple, specifically a lot of the time the wife will, will gear into this kind of controlling thing. Now, none of you do it, and my wife doesn't do it, but some people's wives do. Now, that's what happens when she is not receiving from Christ what only Christ can give her. Who can give a woman true security, true confidence that things are going to work out okay for her kids, true peace, true sense of justice that God is not just going to turn a blind eye to all the injustice in the world? Women feel that deeply. Where do you get that from? You get it from him. This is what it's, it's like, as is fitting to the Lord, as unto the Lord. And then he flips it. And if you've ever heard a preacher get up, I made a joke about it earlier. I just read this part and said, we're good here. No, it's, it's, a, it's a mutually voluntary, mutual voluntary submission between, two, between a man and a woman. Look what he says. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He's also giving us a clue. Where does the shadow side of a husband go? What does a husband, what, is, what does a man want to do for the most part? Again, speaking with broad strokes here, but most men have some sense of 
desire for meaning, desire to accomplish, desire to succeed, something goes back to that fill the earth and subdue it. That's in us. But what happens when that is not being satisfied in and through Christ, we try to dominate our wives. This is where the whole like, toxic masculinity comes, comes from. It's a man expressing dominion in the wrong way. And this is what we're invited to. We're actually invited to love our wives, not be harsh with them. Paul says in Ephesians, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Y'all, just saying, we're not going to do a complete review, but that is a high standard. That is, a, that is the highest standard of laying one's life down, giving up one's right to be right, and serving even when someone doesn't deserve it or might not even, the outcome might not even go the way you wanted it to. And this is how God designed marriage to work. Tim Keller says it way better than I can, which is pretty normal. Uh, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage. You have the prospect of a truly great marriage. The Christian principle that needs to be at work is spirit-generated selflessness. Not thinking less of yourself or more of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It means taking your mind off yourself and realizing that in Christ, your needs are going to be met and are, in fact, being met so that you don't look at your spouse as your savior. That's a mic drop. That's, that one hit me between the eyes. He goes on. People with a deep grasp of the gospel can turn around and admit that their selfishness is the problem. And this, Wives, this is not time to nudge your, your spouse right here. It's not. You're missing the point. To admit that their selfishness is the problem and that they're going to work on it. And when they do that, they will often discover an immediate sense of liberation, of waking up from a troubling dream. They see how small-minded they were being and how small the issue is in light of the grand scheme of things. Those who stop concentrating on how, how unhappy they are find that their happiness is growing. You must lose yourself to find yourself. How many of you have seen that play out in your marriage? There's been times where we have had, once anyway, a fight. No, where we, we have locked horns and then like one of us, usually me, no, it's not. One of us will decide like in reverence to Christ, I'm going to actually die on my sword and serve you and maybe give to you what you don't deserve and I'm going to let this thing go. I'm going to offer grace and mercy. And what happens when that, when that happens is that you actually start to find the life of Christ run into your marriage, and all of a sudden, like Tim Keller was talking about, you look back on what you were arguing about. Anybody ever have that, like, retroactive? I don't know why I was actually that mad about that. This is what's happening. So it's built, it's fueled by, and propelled by a marriage. Almost done. I'm almost done. What's also the stereotypical or the, the Christian family? Well, they're peculiar. They're weird because they've got honorable kids. They've got kids who obey their parents. I'm speaking prophetically for the most part, but no. No, this is actually the standard. Let me read it. Let me read it. Now, kids, actually, I want you to pay attention. And parents, this is your chance to elbow your kid. Let's read the scripture. This is the word of God, not my words, God's words. Verse 20. Children, obey your parents. Say it with me. 
in every, oh, it feels good to have my kids in the front row. Children, obey your parents in everything, and here's why. For this pleases the Lord. Now, I know I'm joking around a little bit, but the Bible actually places, like kids hear me, like it places infinite importance to how you honor your parents. Uh, if you read the Ten Commandments, everybody know the Ten Commandments? Maybe not off by heart, but you know what they are. And the Ten Commandments, like they're prioritized in a sequence. And they first begin with sins against God. The first commandment's like, I am the Lord, have no other gods before me. The second commandment goes with it. It talks about make no graven images or idols. The third commandment says, don't take the Lord your God's name in vain. And the fourth commandment says, like, honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. And you know what the fifth commandment is? Honor your mother and father. It actually says it like this. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live, a long, may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And then the Ten Commandments go on to less important things like thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, and thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. I'm, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. Like the, the scripture places this high value on how we honor our parents. Now, really quick, and I'm going to move on. Kids, why should you honor your parents? Is it because they're smarter than you? They are smarter than you. Uh, is it because they love you more than you could ever know? And you won't know until you have kids of your own, which my parents said to me. Are parents right with that? You just, you can't know until you have your own kids. Should you obey your parents because they're smarter than you? Or because they love you? Those are good ideas, but the reason you obey your parents says, as is fitting, that for this pleases the Lord. You obeying your parents pleases God. And God's pleasure is connected to his promise, and that is that it may go well with you in the land the Lord has given you. So your life is very much, it begins, like your life with Christ begins with how you honor your parents. All right, I'm done. I know you're uncomfortable. All right, last thing. So... Parents that or kids that obey their parents, and here's the last thing, and I'm going to wrap up for today, and we're going to pick this up next week. And then it says, so wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wives. Children obey your parents. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Do not embitter your children. Uh, another, another translation says exasperate. Do not embitter your children. Now, I'm not going to unpack this today because next week we're going to focus entirely on the role of parenting and what we as adults are called to do as the church as it pertains to the next generation. So this is, that's an invitation to come back next week, but I want you to do some homework before we jump into that. Uh, when you came in on your seat, there should have been one of these cards, or if you're watching online, uh, you can, yeah, Intentional parenting. We're going to talk about it next week. If you're watching online, scan this QR code on your phone. Uh, if you don't have a phone, someone beside you does. So scan this QR code, and it's going to take you to our website. And on there, it's going to ask you to do something. It's going to ask you to put your kids' names forward. What we feel God is calling us to do, we're going to launch an eight-week initiative. 
And we felt very directed through some, some mutual things that we felt God was saying and also a, a dream that someone, one of our team had where we are going to pray for every single kid in our church family by name every day between now or next Sunday and Easter. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting. Uh, it's going to be meaningful. So what we need from you, parents, because I don't want to put kids' names out there without permission. Uh, we need you, the parents, or grandparents. Some of you are grandparents and your kids don't believe, uh, and so you want to put your kids and your grandkids there. That's fine. Um, but you put the name of your children forward, and we're going to get it on a list, and then beginning uh, Monday after, like next Sunday, we're going to every day pray for your kid by name that God would have their way, have his way in their life. And we're going to contend for that specifically until Easter. And I believe it's going to be great. So if you have kids, and I'll let you, mom and dad, determine, you know, where that cutoff is. If you have kids that aren't adults, um, and, you know, some of you are like, my, my kid's 40. You're like, like <laughs> fine, put his name down. We want, we, <laughs> we want to contend for every single one of our children that God would actually have not just, like, that God would have his way in their life, but we're actually believing that God's going to raise this generation up to actually bring change and transformation in society. And uh, so just do that with me this week. Could you please do that, everybody? Yes? Okay, so when you come back next week, we're going to jump into talking about parenting and the next generation and our role as the church with the next generation. It's going to be very important, so everyone come back next week. Now, as promised, really quick, I painted a picture. What's the path forward? Because as I'm talking about this, I'm talking about like your stereotypical, okay, the Christian family, you know, they've put off the old self and they've adopted the new self and they understand they're part of the church and that it's got a dad and a mom who love each other and everything's just perfect and they've got three perfect kids and everything's just... And you're listening to that and you're like, yeah, my, my family is just not that. We are miles from that. So the question that some of you are probably having right now is with where I am at and the complexity and the complexion of my family in all of its uniqueness and in all of its issues and in all of my concerns and all of its baggage and all the drama and all the brokenness and all that it's not in comparison to what God had in mind, what do I do with that? What is my path forward? Well, the invitation for your family is the exact same as the invitation for you and all the ways you don't measure up to God's standard. You understand that you don't measure up to God's standard, correct? You understand that when we read the scripture and we, we, we talk about, you know, God's, the Ten Commandments, for instance, none of you are batting a thousand on that. And what do we do with our brokenness as individuals? We trust Jesus for his righteousness and for his forgiveness and for his health and for his power to bring life into our broken, busted individuality. So the invitation is the same for your family. You don't leave this saying, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to go get a wife today and we're going to have kids. Like, that, that's not what this is for. This is to cause you in whatever state or place you are in in your life to turn you and your family 
whether you're a single person or whether you're a divorced person or you're a widow or you're a single mom or a single dad or you, whatever the case, turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, have your way in my family. That's the only response that he's interested in out of you. It's Jesus, have your way. Here, here it is. Let's just wrap up with this. Trust Jesus with your family. It's not hard, but it's revolutionary. It's not, it's not complicated, but it's revolutionary. Trust Jesus with your family, regardless of the state it's currently in. The Christian family is the product of the applied grace and truth of Jesus. Can I get an amen? No more, no less. What makes a Christian family a Christian family is Christ. Right? So no one should leave here letting the enemy sit there and snap, you know, smack you on the face saying, ha, where's your husband? Oh, you didn't have kids. What makes a Christian family a Christian family is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ is all and in all. And when we open our hearts and open our homes to let him be king, anything is possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We just say that it's true. And Lord, we, we both hear the invitation of it to turn our lives to you. And God, I pray for every family that's here today, regardless of the makeup or complexion or history or status, Lord, we say no one is beyond your grace and no one is disqualified from your invitation to build our households on your grace and your truth. Lord, would you help us do that better? Uh, Lord, would you help us learn what it means to like put off the old self and lean into the new? And God, would you help us, like those of us who are husbands, would you help us love our wives like you love the church? And those of us who are wives, you help us submit to our husbands as unto the Lord. Lord, I pray for your grace on our kids, Lord, that they would have a very quick and uh, quick awareness of your presence in their lives. And Father, I pray just for all of our households that you, God, would be found in it, that we would be Christian households because Christ is in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen.